All right, you guys ready? Let's go. Oh, got it. I was giving you this chance because you asked for it last time. <laughs> thanks, thanks, thanks. <laughs> I got too excited. Hello. This is the Brothers Trilogy, a podcast where three brothers get together to discuss trilogies. The brothers in question today are Big Brother Bhaya. Bhaya, hello. You're in person today. Hello. Yeah, it's it's nice to actually see some see you live live and in person. Yeah. Uh, is this legal? Uh, <laughs> we are, you know, six meters, six meters, uh, two meters plus <laughs> apart. I think it's absolutely fine. Yeah, and we're both using separate mics, so. Not that that matters, but... but I'm not sure how we'd use the same mic. That's probably a little bit closer than we want to be, even without quarantine. Uh, have you guys seen the Live Aid music videos? <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, once lockdown is over, guys, one mic, three brothers, let's do this. <laughs> yeah, that would be little brother Rai. Rai, you're in your own flat. How are you doing? I'm good. Hello, everyone. I- I'm not too bad. And I am, I am uh, Tobro, the middle brother. And uh, so we are the brothers, and the trilogy in question is Infernal Affairs, not, I should say, Internal Affairs, which I recently found out is is an altogether different movie from the 90s, starring Richard Gere and Andy Garcia. So, dear listener, if you've been listening to the last two episodes and wondering when we're going to get to the Richard Gere part, you know, you've you've been uh, (laughs) watching the whole thing Um, wrong. Um, the other quick thing, well, interesting thing about internal affairs uh, from the 1990s was I didn't know Richard Gere and Andy Garcia really hated one another to the point where the first thing on the IMDb trivia is it says that uh, Richard and Andy didn't get along during the filming. Some of the scenes where they were required to hit each other uh, were apparently for real and, and Andy Garcia refused to attend the rap party. Uh, I thought Andy Garcia would be quite good at rapping, actually. <laughs> you know, I think, thinking about both those guys, I think both of them come across as quite unlikable to me. Um, <laughs> the roles they play. There's something really creepy about Richard Gere. I, I don't know why I think that. There's yeah, probably no logic yeah. behind it. but I find Just get it. away from Julia Roberts, man. Stay right? Leave her alone. God. <laughs> Yeah, and, and Andy Garcia, and again, maybe it's just the roles he plays, but he comes across like a real hothead to me. Like you just think he's there to to kick off. Yeah, but the thing about, okay, so you said rap. But the thing about rap is, right, so when you think about 90s feuds, what do you think about? You're thinking Tupac and Biggie, right? East Coast, mm-hmm. West Coast, everybody in the schoolyard yeah. was like, you know, you Tupac. We... Nobody ever asked me, are you are you Richard Gere or Team Andy <laughs> This 90s beef doesn't get enough attention, which is why I wanted to bring it up in this podcast. It needs more attention, you know. Um, no, that is true. That you know? is true. Yeah. So I'm gonna put you guys on the spot and uh, ask you to pick sides. You know, are you gonna be Team Gear or Team Garcia? Team Garcia, name, name, calling it. Right, you can have, oh, you can man. have creepy Richard Gear. Oh, I'm going out with Richard Gear, man. What a nightmare. All right. What a nightmare. All right. Don't forget, uh, you and I have watched uh, Richard Gear in The Jackal. Uh, many a times. Matt, you guys like that film way too much. I do not understand why you guys were into that weird ass film. Yeah, we did. Bruce Willis was weird. Richard Gere was weird. <laughs> Listen, man, we only had a few uh, VCDs as they were those days, so let's just watch them over and over. I remember when I went down, he goes, let's watch a film, guys. The Jackal. 
also we were talking about Rai watching uh, Infernal Affairs Underage. So the Jackal, I checked it out, BBFC rating is 18 and it came out in 1997. So we were seriously <laughs> underage when we watched it back oh in the 90s. Right, what year, oh, what year were you born? 93 or something? Yeah, 93. <laughs> Four year old Rai watching the Jackal with us. Awful, <laughs> awful. Yeah, also memorable for Richard Gere's um, awful Irish accent, where he played a, an, I, an Irish um, IRA agent. Andy Garcia, a bit more badass. Uh, and he's done some films that we might come back to. Godfather Part 3 mm-hmm. and Ocean's yeah. Trilogy. Uh, I don't know if he's in all three of them, but he's definitely in the first one. Which I, I, I think he is, yeah. yeah. I think he plays... I can't. In, in fact, he definitely is in all three of those as well. Yeah, I mean, obviously not in the first two Godfathers, um, and you know, actually, as soon as you've said Andy Garcia, it puts me off wanting to watch the Godfather trilogy because I just don't want to watch that last film. <laughs> um, are those trilogies you'd want to do at some point? Um, yes. Uh, I, uh, yeah, I mean, it, in the whole list of trilogies that we're going to do, I think we've got to do Godfather at one point, and the Ocean ones are quite fun, aren't they? The sort of, are they all Soderbergh, or is just the first one? I can't remember actually. Um, but yeah, they're a fun sort of easy watch. Um, honest confession, honest confession, guys. I've never seen Godfather two or three. Just seen one, Whoa. one and out. All right. As as your elder brothers, right? We have let you down. That's on us. <laughs> and also, I'm pretty sure I just saw the wedding and then fell asleep. So, I mean, just watching one, it's not. So you managed to get right to watch the jackal over and over again, but you never sat him down for Godfather. Jesus. Oh man, uh, the jackal. Who was the other guy in the jackal? Was it, it's not Bruce Willis, was it? Bruce, Bruce Willis, Willis, yeah. Oh, Bruce Willis, yeah, yeah. Oh. In a he weird blonde wig or something. <laughs> Alright, so we'll say goodbye to Richard Gere. We'll never see him again on this podcast. But Andy Garcia, maybe. Maybe twice. Um, the other Andy Garcia film, Untouchables, uh, I remember, which, which it's not really a trilogy, but you could possibly make it a trilogy because there's enough Al Capone films out there to make it like a triple bill. Oh, there's a new one, right, with Tom Hardy. That's yeah, out, yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, yeah it's Tom Hardy playing Al Capone. Yeah. The Al Capone trilogy I'm really up for. Actually, I quite like the idea of doing these kind of thematic trilogies rather than rather than the obvious ones. That's quite nice. Yeah, and it'd be interesting to compare because obviously it's De Niro playing Al Capone in Untouchables mm-hmm. compared to, say, Tom Hardy's performance and then mm-hmm. throw one more in there. And, and it'd be interesting to see, like, mm. compare that. All right, so that's enough uh, internal affairs. Um, <laughs> and uh, the other piece of news, quick Twitter update. Our quest to find a fifth follower to the <laughs> Trilogy <laughs> Brothers all about that. at Trilogy Brothers Twitter account might soon be over. So it's not over yet. So, <laughs> so uh, Bahia, you and I, we, I mean, we were at the park and we met with cousin Arman and... He confirmed that he listens to the show, uh, so shout out to him. And um, uh, yeah, so so we definitely have one listener. That's not us. Um, and he he would follow us on Twitter. He says, except he doesn't have a Twitter account. But that's where cousin Nawaz, our other cousin, came to the rescue and said he will create a jointly administered Twitter account. Wait, why? <laughs> Why would you share a Twitter account? <laughs> so, <laughs> I have no idea. So the idea is creating a jointly administered Twitter account. The two of them will, will manage it. And the purpose of it will be to be our fifth follower. <laughs> so 
so that that's where we are. We're trying to get uh, a fifth follower. Uh, I mean, cousin Nawaz, what you're really doing there is you're depriving us of a sixth follower by combining your efforts. <laughs> so I don't know why, but okay, we'll take it. Look, man, we, all we need is five, and then we beat the brother, the brothers trilogy. No, the trilogy brothers. Hang on, which one are we? We are the Brothers Trilogy. Uh, having a look at our four followers, I've just noticed that two of them are me. <laughs> God, that's still awful. Counts. Still counts, still counts. Um, yeah, uh, also shout out to Cousin Armand's uh, own podcast, Peas in a Pod. So check that out. You guys listen to Peas in a Pod? Peas in a Pod's amazing. It's, it's a quick 15-minute roundup that he does with... Uh, his sister and his mum, and it is just absolutely hilarious. Yeah. All right, that's all the news. On to the main show. Released in 2003. Uh, okay, oh, just one year after Infernal Affairs 1, which came out in 2002, and just two months after the release of Infernal Affairs 2, which also came out in 2003. You're joking! This is this one's like three films in two years, right? Like this is the quickest trilogy of all time. Like, so, so did they film two and three simultaneously? Is that the only way they could have done it? Because there's no way they made a film in two months, right? Logically. But then you've got the same. Okay, you don't have Andy Lau and Tony Lund, but you do have um, uh, the the bosses in both films, and they're huge characters in both films. Yeah, I don't know, maybe they just scheduled it right, or maybe it didn't. Yeah. I mean, I'm just impressed at the logistics of this more than anything yeah. now. Well, also, yeah, I think at this stage it was just a bit of a cash cow as well, so just keep whipping them out. I mean, they don't seem the most expensive films to film. Yeah, I think we've basically taken longer to do our three episodes. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so it's still directed by um, Andrew Lau and Alan Mack. Uh, same writers, um, and we talked about the cast. Uh, all the all the everyone's back: Andy Lau, Tony Lung, Anthony Wong, Eric Sang, and Kelly Chen. Um, so I won't go into all of those guys again. Um, though I will mention, since we're now thinking about what trilogies we could do uh, next, uh, that Tony Lung uh, stars also in Red Cliff, which is a two-parter, but. Uh, there are other movies also in that Dynasty Warriors era that you could uh, throw in there. That's the uh, the Romance of Three Kingdoms story, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah I've only watched that the once with you in the cinema. Mm. I'm really up for rewatching. That would be cool, right? Absolutely, yeah. 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 And he's also uh, in the Grandmaster, where he plays Ip Man, which Donnie Yen did the Ip Man trilogy. So this would essentially be a bonus to that. Yeah, the other thing Tony Lung I, I didn't mention earlier was. I just remembered it. So Tony Lung, one of his films was Ashes of Time. Um, this is a Wong Kar Wai film. And Ashes of Time is the only film I remember actually watching twice in one day, right once after the other. Wong Kar Wai not. Yeah. <laughs> Good one. Uh, so this was, do you guys remember Love Film? So Love Film. Yeah. yeah. They used to send DVDs, sent right? It was like yeah. pre-Netflix, Netflix kind of. Pre-Netflix, post-Blockbuster. It was yes. just sort of this um, weird moment. And yeah, so I had to return the DVD. So I just thought, oh, I've got to give it back. I might as well watch it again. So I just watched it <laughs> twice in one day. Uh, um, so the new members of the cast are Mr. Leon Lai, 
uh, an accomplished actor and canto pop singer, um, and Chen Daoming, um, who you may remember as playing the emperor in Hero, um, the king in Hero. Um, Hero had Tony Long in it as well, didn't it? It did. Yeah, yeah it did. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the film is, the, all these films are produced by Media Asia Films. And I thought I'd mention that because that intro music for Media Asia really takes me back every time. Yeah, I felt that too. And I don't know if they didn't play it in the earlier ones and Netflix version I saw or didn't notice. But certainly with this one, it was just, whoa, we're, we're back. We're, we're back, back, back in your bedroom, bedroom back in the day. day. <laughs> Watching those DVDs. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm really surprised that it's the same director. Because this film felt so different uh, than the... I mean, actually, they, between one and two, they felt quite different. Uh, but that could have been sort of time passing and budget and so on. But this felt like a very, very different film to me. All right, let's get to that. Um, let me start off with the synopsis. I know you guys have seen it, but uh, Cousin Arman hasn't. Uh, so, for, <laughs> so for his R1 uh, listener's benefit... Uh, so no, this would, uh, to be fair, this would also do me quite a lot of benefit because there's a lot of time jumps and I have no idea. Not only are there time jumps, there's also like one character starts playing the other character and I'm just like, what? I thought he was in the other time zone. I was getting right. so confused yeah. watching this. Um, so Rai and uh, Cousin Arman, as you guys might recall, um, Infernal Affairs is essentially the story of a cop called Chan who is undercover with the Hong Kong triad. And while Chan is undercover in the triad, the triad also have a mole of their own undercover within the police force, who is called Lao. So we have these two undercover guys. Uh, oh, let me just say, spoiler warnings from this point on for all three Infernal Affairs films. Right. So Infernal Affairs 3 basically adds a little bit more to Chan's story and Lao's story. So it takes place on, on these two different timelines. So... And we can treat them kind of separately. So Chan's portion of the film takes place between the events of the uh, first two films. So if you remember, the second film is a prequel, so that's kind of why. At the end of basically Infernal Affairs 2, Chan had been working undercover in the triads, but the boss, who, uh, the triad boss, who was also his half-brother, was killed, and a new boss called Sam took over in the end. Um, so this is where we kind of pick up the story again in Infernal Affairs 3. So we see how Chan, uh, working undercover, now gains the trust of the new boss uh, called Sam. And this is mainly through uh, unquestionably following Sam's orders, even when it might be to his own detriment. And we also learn uh, more about Chan's love story, how he falls in love with his therapist and the therapist falls in love with him through a bunch of counseling sessions. Um, and that's pretty much it, actually, in terms of Chan's storyline. Um, at that point, uh, the original first Infernal Affairs story kicks back in. So there's the cat and mouse game between Chan and Lao, the cops and the triads, uh, out of which Lao is ultimately the last man standing and Chan ends up dead. Um, and now we kind of go back to Infernal Affairs 3 to pick up Lao's story, what happens after he uh, wins the battle of uh, the first Infernal Affairs and, be, and ends up the last man standing. So with Lao, uh, um, at first there's a bit of an inquiry into what happened and he's officially cleared for any wrongdoing or involvement in, in the death of Chan or anybody else. So he kind of gets away with it. But although he's been cleared of wrongdoing, Lao learns that there were other moles in the organization. Uh, he's not the only one. Um, and, and these other 
uh, potential triad moles might know his identity, and he feels the only true way to cover his tracks will be try to identify them and to remove them from the picture. And in his effort to do this, he starts to suspect this other guy called Superintendent Young. So this is a new character introduced. Um, and at the same time as he's trying to you know, track down Young and, and look into whether Young is a mole for the triads, he's also going through a lot of um, issues himself. We learn that his marriage is broken down and his wife is divorcing him. Um, and whether it's the divorce or the constant paranoia that he might be discovered uh, or the guilt over his past actions, all of this kind of seems to take a toll on him. And ultimately we see Lao starts to break down mentally. Um, and his mental deterioration gets to the point where he starts to see himself as Chan and he casts Superintendent Young as the triad mole Lao. So now Lao, essentially thinking that he is Chan, uncovers evidence incriminating really himself, um, speaking to the uh, triad boss Sam. So rather than destroying the evidence, he plays it out loud for the entire office to hear. Uh, so as you know, as though he Chan has finally caught the mole, but of course he is the mole, and the voice on the recorder isn't Superintendent Young's. It's his. It's Lao's own voice. So the officers in the room instead turn to turn arrest Lao. But Lao, in his confusion, keeps insisting, "I am not Lao. I am Chan," uh, and that's Lao. And the, you know, a struggle ensues, and Lao ends up sh killing Superintendent Young, uh, and then. Uh, in the confusion, just trying to kill himself and shoots himself in the head. This is kind of where the movie ends, and then there's a bit of an epilogue where we see um, Lao ends up in some kind of... Well, actually, Lao survives the, the shooting of himself, and he ends up in some kind of asylum uh, for, I guess, the criminally insane. And he's in a wheelchair, he's got permanent brain damage. His ex-wife comes to visit him, uh, but he's really unable to communicate with her. Instead, all he's doing is just sitting in his chair and he's tapping Morse code with his finger. Now, Morse code was established throughout these films as the, as the method that Chan used to communicate back to the police. So perhaps Lao in his state is still thinking that he's Chan. Um, but, and I didn't know this at the time of watching it, apparently the word he's tapping out um, is, is the word hell. So. Again, building on this overall theme of Lao being the person that can never die, because he even tried to literally shoot himself in the head, but he continues to live and continues to suffer, and the film kind of ends at that point. He could, he could be saying hello, though. That is true. That is true. <laughs> could have just cut before the air. Yeah, Mary just left, if, if only she knew the uh, <laughs> yeah. So That was a job. fantastic job summarizing that. That's such a complicated plot. I mean, ultimately, you started by saying Infernal Affairs 3 takes place after Infernal Affairs 2, but before Infernal Affairs 1, but also after Infernal Affairs 1. Yeah. So the, the chronological order of this film goes Infernal Affairs 2, some of Infernal Affairs 3, then Infernal Affairs 1, and then the rest of Infernal Affairs 3. Yeah. And with a lot of Infernal Affairs 3 taking place as semi-dream sequences. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> Um, so I spent, I spent, I mean, you probably know from that synopsis that I spent most of the time talking about Lao's story because Chan's story really is just these two things, him, you know, gaining Sam's trust and him falling in love. Um, this, the, you know, gaining Sam's trust, I guess I, I, I pointed that out as a flaw in Infernal Affairs 2. I said, well, if Sam's just killed the triad boss, a previous triad boss, 
and Chan is the brother of the previous tribe boss. How is he going to trust Chan? But I guess they tried to fill that gap here. And then the falling in love thing was something I, I had a problem with in Infernal Affairs 1, that I said, well, I didn't really buy the love story, and now I feel that they tried to sell it to me a bit more by giving a bit more of, oh, this is how it happened. And I, I kind of felt the love story in this film, is, is it was genuinely funny, actually. There was you know scenes where she was trying to counsel him, and he's doing these sort of... He brings out this comedic alarm clock at one point. It's very sweet, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm, he's eating a papadome or something the other yeah. time. And at one point he's doing business in her office and says, oh, what's your fax number? And, you know, yeah. you need to get a fax in here. So, you know, it was it was kind of sweet. But ultimately I felt like neither of these things were really necessary. And it was kind of an odd fit for this film. I, I, I don't know. For me, it was just like Chan's story was not needed really for the character. We could have filled these parts out in our head. And ultimately, it kind of felt like trying to have more screen time for Tony Lung in this movie. Mm. I don't know how you guys uh, interpreted it, his story at least. So his, yeah, his actual story, uh, although charming and fun, and the character is great. Uh, didn't didn't propel the story any forward anymore because it took you from you know I was going to say A to B but I guess it takes you from I don't know C to D when you're already on F or whatever it's filling in a gap that doesn't have to be filled in um, that's not to say the story wasn't fun and I think I think uh, Lau's story being so heavy so dark watching him kind of fall into his paranoia um, a little bit of levity was a good thing in in the film overall uh, bringing some of that back. There's also, I think, something around just reminding yourself of who this character really is. So as you're seeing, you know, how much um, Lau is suffering in his life uh, now, there was something around, although Chan was going, you know, being undercover and is going through this kind of difficult life, there was some joy in his life. So if you think about that thing of, you know, endless suffering, it is Lau that is going through suffering and, and Chan went through a better life, had some, some decency in his life. Um, but I think, yeah, I, I also agree. It did feel like it's a bit of a screen time thing. You know, you've got a big actor and you're not going to have him in just for um, just for these little flashback cameo bits. You know, if you want to sell it, have him in. Yeah, mm. give him, the thro yeah, give him a, a thread to go through. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's visually satisfying to see that uh, the two of them on the screen together, especially if there was a scene when they were both of them, Chan and Lau, were in the psychiatrist's office. Um, and I think uh, Lao takes a sip from a glass, puts it on the table, then Chan picks it up, and then the camera goes back, and you see the two of them there, and it's quite interesting to see both of them, and, and nice to have it. But yeah, with the, to what extent it supports the the bigger story, which I think is um, Lao. So, so this is only occurring to me now. Is yeah. there any implication there of it was the psychiatrist that sort of transferred? You know, was she the vessel through which uh, Chan's mind transferred into Lao, if you know what I'm saying? Because that's the person that they were both seeing. That's the person they were both being counseled by. Uh, you know, if somehow Chan's essence was given to her and she kind of got it back into Lao. Mm. You know, and then sort of passing that glass of water back and forth. Was that the way of showing, actually, you know, essentially he Chan drank it, put it on the table, Lao picked it up and drank it. That's the transference, right? Mm, mm, yeah and Chan does eventually just become a part of Lao's psyche right he kind mm -hmm. of implants himself in a way mm -hmm. in Lao even though Lao's been responsible for other people's deaths he, and he wasn't actually fully responsible for Chan's death 
but it seems to have been the one that's affected him the most. Um, so, so some of this actually sells me um, Chan's story a little bit more, I think. Um, again, it's a little bit strange because, as you say, it came out two months after the previous one, so it's not like you need to remind the audience of it. It's only a year since they saw the last film. Um, but if you were to watch this film in isolation, I think you'd have to know a little bit about Chan to really understand, you know, what's going on. So maybe it fills that gap because the film should stand up on its own as well, right? Without without mm. the previous films as well. Yeah. Right, what did you feel about uh, Chan's portion of the film? Yeah, I mean, I get that it's sort of surplus, surplus, surplus. There's a word there. I'm all going to get it wrong. Surplus? I think that's it. Extra. It was extra. Don't worry, I'll cut that. <laughs> yeah, it was extra. Um, it's gonna stay in. It's gonna stay but in. I, th- I think there's a lot of a lot of this film that a uh, slightly meaner editor would have cut out, like not just that Chan portion of the story. Just sort of uh, circling back a little bit, the discussion that you guys just had on how Chan entered Laos psyche and all this stuff was like really fascinating. But I'll be honest, like I. It didn't really come come to me when I was watching the film, and I don't know whether that's like you guys that are really reading into it or the film just not being able to actually deliver that story. I think that might, the story you guys are discussing is probably the story it wants to deliver, but I don't feel like that's what was given to me. I just felt felt like oh he's going a bit mental. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there there's a sense that I think Lao is going slowly mad, right? And and mm. him ultimately thinking that he's Chan looking in the mirror and seeing Chan reflected back at him, you know, he's, he's a total guy with, without any friends, totally isolated, and there's the mental disorder part. But I think his mental um, disorder is also linked to Chan somehow, uh, because that is, he just can't get him out of his head. And, and, and there's that scene that I quite liked that was in, in, I think it was in the hospital, where Lao playing himself tries to explain his actions to Chan like oh you know I really wanted to be a good guy let me explain myself and then playing the role of Chan he pulls a gun on basis basically himself and and executes himself like get he he plays out a scenario I'm not explaining it where where's Chan as as Chan taking revenge on himself yeah Essentially, this this there's something about what happened in in his relationship with Chan that he just can't get out of his head. Yeah, I was gonna say I think that's right. I think that's what's there. My, my sort of point is more the fact that I don't know if how good a job the film did in actually portraying that story and making you go on that journey with Lao. Um, maybe it wasn't helped by the changing time zones and things. But I felt very disconnected from that journey, and I sort of. Mm. While I was watching, I was comparing it to my first experience watching Shutter Island, and mm. like sort of the experience that you go on with Leo on that, um, and it's completely different. Like I, I for this one, it was more just like objective. Okay, I can see that he's going mad, and it's because he was an undercover cop, and now he wants to be a cop, cop, and all that stuff. But I don't know. I didn't really go on that journey with him. There's also something about um, Lao learning about Chan during the course of this film. Right, because actually, you know, by Infernal Affairs, by the end of the first film, by the time Lao, by the time Chan dies, Lao doesn't know him that well. 
so maybe the other portrayal of this is this is Lao learning about Chan and we're learning this part of Chan as well. And that's why when he's looking in the mirror, for example, he's seeing a smiling guy at the, at the other side of it. Because when he was meeting Chan, Chan wasn't all charming and happy and smiley or whatever. But that's the kind of impression he had and that's the psyche that he created in on himself. Um, and I guess that would have come through his conversations with the psychiatrist, with the tapes that he stole, all of that kind of stuff to get you to understand this person. Yeah. The um, other thing about Lao's story that I quite liked was the whole uh, paranoia bit of it. You know, it almost felt like, and we talked about genres changing, but it almost felt as if it was like one of those Cold War spy thrillers had that a little flavor of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. You know, who knows what, who's watching who. I'm watching Lung, or is he watching me, and who's working for the triads? There's this sort of immense paranoia, you can't trust anybody, and he's kind of isolated in the office. I, I quite liked all of that as well, and obviously that all feeds into his ultimate mental breakdown. I have a question for you both about this, because I thought there was a potentially quite a clever red herring within there. Um, the screen that he had, where he'd drawn a circle with all the arrows on, Mm. Did you clock on straight away what that was about? That that was about the safe. No, no, I did not. so I didn't I think, either. I think I got it. I think I thought it was the safe. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah. So when I saw it, I just thought, God, this guy's going really fucking crazy. He's now mm. literally drawing arrow on his on his screen, saying, "Look here, look here," and it's nonsense because it was kind of pointing nowhere. Uh, and then when it flipped and it was actually the safe, it was like, oh, there is some kind of cognitive thing going on. He's still smart. He's just losing the, the plot as well. Yeah. Um, so, Rai, you, you, you just mentioned that, you know, there's probably stuff that you would cut out of this film. And I think, um, interestingly, actually, there's a director's cut of this film with an extra 10 minutes. And I tried to find out what those extra scenes were. And I think the Netflix version is the director's cut because a lot of the scenes we did watch in the end. Um, as it, a lot of it is actually after Lao shoots himself, that sort of epilogue of, of, you know, of seeing more and more of the other characters meeting and things like that and showing the respects to Chan. Um, but yeah, I think I would do the same. You know, I'd cut things out of this movie. And there's a question there, I guess, about is there enough, is there enough here uh, to tell a good story, uh, a standalone story, um, or is it, or is Infernal Affairs three essentially just a bit of an epilogue in itself to Infernal Affairs one? Is that all this really is? If you cut out all the extra fat? Yeah. So I was thinking, um, it's like they've taken the worst character from Infernal Affairs one, the psychiatrist, and made a massive movie about her. And then I was like, oh, that's basically like if they took the worst character from the Avengers, Hawkeye, and made a whole movie about him. But then I was like, oh, they actually did kind of do that. <laughs> um, I think what this film brought, and again, this is why I was surprised at the same director, because this was super stylized, right? You know, it had really, like, beautiful shots. There was a, a one that really stuck out, was the one of the Buddha with the statue of the Buddha with the sky flowing behind it, and it was really artistic. It, it was kind of that thing of, you know, the Zack Snyder films where they're... Really beautiful, really cinematic. You know, you could pause anything and it's a perfect poster, but there was not a lot of substance to it. And even, even you know, if you think about the way everyone was dressed, literally everyone was in black and white the whole time. It was super stylish. Whereas literally the previous film in Final Fest 2, it was kind of gritty and real. Um, they did a lot of stuff where they 
like played with color and things like that throughout the film so you know you had the cops who would wear a bit of blue you would have you know these specific uh uh motifs of like orange would come in to counter that and that would be a there would be sort of threat trend behind it the psychiatrist wearing white as that kind of vessel between so there was a lot of stuff you know sort of silly literate stuff that they were playing with you know sort of communicating things in a different way that's what was there that's what was new to the party what wasn't new was an interesting story the story didn't grow or continue or give us anything. Um, so talking, thinking of this as a genre jumping trilogy, yeah, fine. This was the kind of stylish one. <laughs> this wasn't necessarily the story one, um, and also the kind of the psycho one. But I, yeah, I agree. In terms of just telling the story, you could have ended. You didn't need this stuff, especially Chan stuff. You didn't need it at all. And really, what the ultimately, what did we get with Lao stuff? Yeah, his suffering. Well, we, we got, got that in a single line of text at the end of Infernal Affairs. True. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's. It, it's almost like there's no halfway house in in the cinema because you can do you can have like something like a post credit scene which is very short, or you can make a whole movie. But the idea of, I think this like just a half an hour story of how Lao ended would be really awesome because I think it, there is a nice story about how Lao essentially starts to go crazy and you know watching a person go through all of this I thought it was a good performance and um, there, there's so this is where I get to show off a little bit but there's there's a similarity between this and um, Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky which I noticed um, so both Lao and Knowledge Drop one of the two books I've read um, so both Lao and Raskolnikov the uh, main character of Crime and Punishment. They both commit a murder. They're both very smart at covering up their tracks. They're both morally ambiguous, but at the same time, both have inner deep turmoil in a broader sense. Uh, at the end of Crime and Punishment, Raskolnikov actually gets away with his murder, um, and but he decides of his own right that he will go and confess, uh, and and so that's when he receives the punishment. Um, Whereas Lao also kind of gets away with it, but he exposes himself sort of um, inadvertently. So it is an interesting story, I think, to see that ultimately Lao does, uh, Lao's fall. But I think, yeah, I wish there was another way of telling this story without having to make it a full film or, you know, cutting it down to like an after credit scene or something at the end of Infernal Affairs 1. And I guess that exists now, because now you'll do a, like a spin-off cartoon, you'll do a comic book, you'll do this, and there's lots of ways you're going to carry on and telling a story if it's not sort of cinema-worthy. I suppose that decision isn't always made based on a good story. It's based on if it's going to bring in the money. And clearly they knew this would bring in the money and that's why this kind of film was made, right? So it was the star power, wasn't it? All right. I think that's enough for Infernal Affairs 3. Let's uh, share some thoughts now on the trilogy as a whole. Um, yeah, so one of the uh, things I wanted to touch on a theme that I think was running is running through all of these films is that characters aren't who they seem they are, right? And that's sort of, I mean, we see that with Lao and Chan. They're both wearing masks, uh, and their true selves are something quite other than that. Um, and we see that in this film with new characters also uh, introduced who don't turn out to be who the film uh, makes us think they are initially. Um, and, and that's quite an interesting theme in itself uh, in our modern world where I think we have things like social media and we're constantly trying to present ourselves as something other than who we are 
um, you know, whether it's you know as somebody who's always smiling and on holiday on Instagram or an extra witty version of ourselves on Twitter. You know, in Japan, you can hire people to be your family members uh, for events and things like that to show that you have friends or family members. And um, and then there's this sort of the more we create this self, right, the false self, the more there's a worry that our true selves wouldn't be accepted, right? Like, oh, if people knew who I really was, they wouldn't like me. They wouldn't like my posts or whatever. And and Lao really experiences this horror for real. The, the idea that nobody would accept me and if they really see me for who I am. And when I tried, when Lao tries to, to sort of bear himself and, and say to Chan at the end of Infernal Affairs, the first one, says, look, you know, I made mistakes, but this is me, you know, I'm, I'm trying to turn over a new leaf, and Chan kind of says, uh-uh, uh, once a criminal, always a criminal, save it for the judge kind of thing, like, I'm not gonna... So, and then he's constantly trapped in this situation where I have to create and maintain a false self, and that's what drives Lao throughout this Infernal Affairs 3 anyways, trying to maintain that, and it gets more and more difficult to the point where he loses himself, and which version am I really? Am I really the good cop? Am I Chan or am I Lao? Um, so this is re really, I think, I mean, a theme that's running throughout and, and something that, that I think a lot of people today can really relate to, this idea of having to maintain the false self and, and, and this worry that if someone sees the true self, you know, it'll be the end for us. Yeah, yeah that, that that's certainly. Right. So did you feel that was strong in internal Infernal Affairs 2 as well? In, in 2 as well, I think, but... but I got it more out of this uh, third film, I think. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, I think, it's, in terms of you know suffering the consequences of it, it felt a lot stronger in in the adult Lao and Chan. Um, and I'm not sure I saw much of it in terms of Sam and the Inspector and in, in, in Inspector Wong either. But that is absolutely right. I I agree with that 100. Mm -hmm. um, percent I think the other sort of thing that stood out to me as well is just in terms of you know, the levels of grey and also black and white. So, you know, Wong and Sam had their levels of grey. Nothing was clear-cut with either of them. You know, in the first time, uh, Lao, we, we, we thought about, you know, is, is he a redeemable character? And as he goes towards it, no, he's not in the slightest. Uh, and then in, on the other side, you've got um, Chan, who, as you go through his story more and more, seems sort of further and further in that side of white. You know, white knight. So it's um, that playing with the whole concept of that was quite interesting for me. I just want to go back to you know you said that we you know we had that discussion after the on the first episode of is Lao a redeemable character? Mm. I wonder in an imaginary world where he didn't have to kill at the end of that first film, would he have just lived the rest of his life as like a really good cop and like done a lot of good because he was clearly got a job right, he got promoted and stuff super fast. Like would he he would have had time to redeem himself and not have had to go through this paranoia of trying to kill the other five moles. Yeah, I think that's the idea for Lao. The idea is that if if only I I had to stop covering my tracks, I could just be a good policeman and live this life and be happy and married and all. Um, but but yeah, the ideal was constantly out of reach, I suppose, because um, in a sense it was all constructed on on lies, right? Um, yeah, Infernal Affairs Three really makes me feel that this is it's Lao's story that we're following. You know, um, I don't know if you guys have seen 
Toy Story 4, but by the time you get to Toy Story 4, you really realize this is Woody's story, it's not Buzz's story that, that we're following. And I, I kind of feel like this movie particularly tipped it to me for me to see a full character arc for Lao um, from a very unsympathetic kind of gangster when he was young, killing the elder Mary and so on and so forth, and ending up pretty much insane and driven insane by it all. Um, but did Infernal Affairs need to be a trilogy? What do you guys think? Is this something that, you know, the story was good enough as it was? Um, or is it better off now that we've seen what two and three look like? No, I think no, as a standalone, it was amazing. I think the first film was just really something else. I can understand watching something so good and clamoring out for more. Uh, I don't necessarily feel two and three added enough to that. But what I will say I liked about it is that they were very different films. So it wasn't just we'll do the same again, but more. You know, we'll we'll, we'll give you the characters again, but we'll do different things with them. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I don't know if it needs to be a trilogy, but I think you've got to admire the filmmakers here for actually trying to do something different, trying to push things forward. I mean, it's always better to try to do something creative and fail than it is to try to just do your bog standard mm. slot A, tab B, and, you know, produce something mediocre. Would you guys, um, if someone was going to watch these films, would you insist that they go one, two, three, or is there any value in watching the prequel first and so go two, one, three, or if it was possible to get a super cut and watch everything in chronological order? Um, yeah, is there any argument, I suppose, to watch it two, one, three, the super cut, or is one, two, three definitely still the best way to experience it? So I guess if you watched it in the chronological order, some of the sort of gaps that you found in two, for example, or in one, not buying the relationship with Mary, not buying the certain him winning the trust of Sam again, like that would actually be paid off and you wouldn't have felt that. Yeah, it's a series of diminishing returns. Uh, and if you're enjoying it desperately, want to watch it, you know, keep going. I feel like if I do a rewatch, I'll only just watch one again. That's the one that I have some kind of urge to rewatch. The other two don't do anything for me. Um, so I would watch it in release order. Cool. Yeah, I think I would still, yeah. I, I think I still have a soft spot for for, for Lao's ending in three. So I, I would still watch one, two, and three, but in that order, probably, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, we talked a little bit at the start of the first episode what we take from this trilogy. Um, yeah, I'm wondering if you guys have changed your views on that or... Um, Rai, I think you said um, the efficient storytelling, which I guess became less and less efficient as we get to the third mm-hmm. film, but is that still the standout feature for you? No, I think it wasn't... It's not efficient. I mean, this third one is definitely... Look, the word efficient is not going to be mentioned in mm. any film review of this yeah. film, for sure. Um, but I think... They, what it, As a trilogy, what it did manage to do is to have that sort of central theme. I mean, of essentially it's a cop thriller with some duplicity in there. But it managed to just present it in like three very different ways in these three different films. And I think that's like really quite impressive. Um, I sort of think about like the musicians who, whose like second, third, fourth album sound just like their first album, and then there's those musicians yeah. who like mix it up every album, and like I've got so much more respect for those musicians who mix it up every album. I might not listen to their third album ever; I might have just listened to it once because I don't want to yeah. hear um, Kid Cudi doing heavy metal. But I respect the fact that he tried it. 
any final thoughts from anyone before we wrap up? Favorite scenes, characters? I think this is a series of film that's really worth worth watching. Uh, at the very least, you know, if you've not if you've not seen the first film, do watch it. It needs to go down in kind of your cinematic knowledge base. I think um, you know you you won't be disappointed. Um, I think as you get to watch other bits of Hong Kong cinema, and you'll see the recurring actors and things like that. You know, this is the this is the home base that it all kind of comes back to, and, and that's really powerful. Um, I can't get over how quickly they were made. I can't get over how different the films were, given that it's the same car, same same uh, creative team behind all of them. That stuff kind of still still blows my mind a little bit. Um, but ultimately, I don't know. I feel like they shot themselves in the foot by killing. Um, Chan at the end of the first film if you're going to make a trilogy yeah. and that's why you're going prequel and you're doing kind of back and forth and, and you know all that kind of stuff and maybe you didn't know you were going to make a trilogy and that's fine as well and that's why the first film in isolation is perfect and it doesn't need to add on if you're going to do a trilogy keep them alive and then you can thread it back because the best part of all of this is the two characters is playing off each other I mean even in the best part of two was Sam and Wong playing off each other yeah. that's the bit that's cool about internal affairs infernal affairs um and I think that's also where um, the last one struggled. It didn't have them playing officer, you know, in that same way. Um, yeah. yeah, I was just going to say favorite scene. I was just thinking about you know, there's that twenty minute sequence in Infernal Affairs one that it goes from the the first drug deal with the Thai people where you first get introduced to the Morse code and all that, and it then ends with them all being arrested and in and on that table. And we spoke about it on episode one of our pod on oh, that yeah. table. That mm-hmm. sort of twenty minute sequence. I mean, come on, yeah. that is filmmaking. Mm. That is filmmaking. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. The tension sort of rising and rising. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that is basically the the, the scene. Um, I think what sticks in my head always is that final rooftop co- confrontation at the end of uh, Infernal Affairs one as well. Um, mm. Probably because they flashbacks to it so much that you kind of, kind of ingrains itself. But also, I think. It's because the rest of the movie is so busy and Hong Kong is so, you know, um, there's a lot of things going on in the offices. Each scene has lots of people. And then suddenly these scenes up on the rooftop, it almost feels very sparse. And I think um, just strip down, see the two characters interacting. So that's that I always liked as well. Um, so, yeah, that concludes the Brothers Trilogy Trilogy. Uh, we've done three episodes, um, and uh, but we've decided to do a bonus episode uh, uh, to also watch The Departed. So, Rai, if you don't like um, long stories, uh, then uh, you know, don't know sure if you like The Departed, which has a very long runtime, I think. Uh, yeah, and part. also some Irish accents to match Richard Gere, mm-hmm. I think, as well. <laughs> So so <coughs> doing a trilogy of four. We're going Douglas Adams on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So UK listeners can watch Departed on Amazon Prime Video if you guys want to check that out. Um, and after the Departed, it's uh, it's completely open field. I don't know. We've talked about a few different trilogies we might uh, do next. Um, so, but the listeners, uh, feel free to give your ideas. That means you, cousin Armand, if you want to. Uh, send us your ideas. I mean, I, I get uh, two votes and whatever we put up because I'm following us twice. I can just make that decision. So you can get a swing, yeah. Um, at Brothers Trilogy. Um, any ideas you want to throw out there before we uh, conclude? 
I, I mean, I'm quite taken by this idea of doing um, uh, Redcliffe. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or I mean, I, I think we could possibly treat that as one film because there was the thing of it being edited into one as well, yeah. and then other things that involved the romance of Three Kingdoms. It is. It is quite a beautiful um, era. You know. You know. When we were younger, we used to play this game on IMDb of trying to get from one actor to another. Right. or one film Great to another and yeah yeah essentially we could play that like so if you go to red cliff so you say okay we're hanging with tony lang <laughs> and then we keep, keep moving um and, and, and somehow keep going i like that that's a good idea jet lee will be our connection to hollywood i think that's the way to get back to mm, hollywood that's true yeah yeah the other film uh, i don't know if you guys noticed so in infernal affairs one there's a scene where um Chan is, uh, or Lao is chasing, tr- oh, I forget which is chasing which, but one is chasing the other out of the cinema, and they walk past a bunch of posters, and one of the posters is Men in Black 2. Yeah. That, <laughs> if, if only that was a better film, because uh, that trilogy, we could have just gone straight into like a connection yeah, yeah. there, but I don't think we'll do the Men in Black trilogy, I hope not. No, 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 no intention no. of that. I mean, the whole point is we get to watch some really good films out of this, so... <laughs> Uh, and and films we wouldn't ordinarily watch, and, and hopefully that's the same for our listeners too. Actually, hopefully this is something that's all as you, you'll come along for these journeys with us, and you'll watch things that you or rewatch things perhaps, but things you wouldn't wouldn't normally be on your list as well. Yeah. yeah. All right. So we'll come with our ideas for next time. Uh, but for the next episode, we will see you guys for the Departed. All right. So it's a uh, good night for me, and good night for my co-hosts. Adios. Night night.